It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get real. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King. Welcome to Crazy and the King. Hey, Torn, are you there? Absolutely. Another episode. And this is what makes me smile because we are staying true to what we said that we were going to do. We have the opportunity to talk to, and I will only say it this time, Dr. Robert Jensen. And we had that chance of inserting new, you know, off week content uh, starting here in the month of June. So I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Yes. So as you said, Torn, we have Dr. Robert Jensen, who is an emeritus professor from the School of Journalism from UT Austin, one of my favorite cities in the world. Uh, My little brother lives there with his beautiful wife. And Dr. Jensen is an author. A couple of books that I know in his space are The End of Patriarchy, The Radical Feminism for Men, and one that I have just wrapped up called The Heart of Whiteness, Confronting Race, Racism, and White Privilege. So welcome, Dr. Jensen, to one of the first interviews for Crazy and the King in June. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, I'm crazy, but I'm not a king, so I guess I got at least half of your podcast (laughs) covered. (laughs) Well, you're in good company because I'm crazy and and Torn's the king here. That's right. And we know, know, Robert, that you are going to absolutely deliver on your half. So uh, let's just take it away. It's going to be- <laughs> your yes, half sir. of the crazy. There you go. That's right. All right. So I actually had the, the privilege of seeing Dr. Jensen, or, or as we call him here, Crazy in the King, Bob, at the National Diversity Conference in Dallas, Texas earlier this year. You all have heard me rave about it because I got to see my, my favorite guy, President Barack Obama. Um, but the the other highlight for me at this conference was sitting in Dr. Jensen's uh, session on race, racism, and and white privilege. And as soon as I got out of that session, I I called Chad, my husband, and I said, got to talk to this guy. Got to spend a little bit more time learning from him. And so I I just want to kind of start out Bob, if you can, just a Mm -hmm. little bit about you. I think it sets up the audience so perfectly to know kind of that you're, well, a white guy from North Dakota. But if you can tell us (laughs) some about that. Yeah, I'm 60 years old. I was born in 1958 in small town in North Dakota, grew up in Fargo, North Dakota. Now that's the big city. You know, it had 60,000 people when I was a kid. (laughs) So I'm from a small, overwhelmingly white um, Part of the country. And like most people who grow up in such places, uh, I, I really didn't have any, any basis for <laughs> understanding what diversity might mean except what I saw on television. Uh, I spent my 20s working as a newspaper journalist, and that got me around the country. Uh, and so I had to start realizing the whole world didn't look like me. Uh, but it wasn't until I was 30 years old and I went back to graduate school. Uh, I was training for a university job. 
and that's when I ran into serious critique of the systems and structures of power in this country. That's where I first started thinking about a feminist critique of patriarchy. It's where I first started thinking about a critical race theory approach to the question of whiteness. And that is what really kind of turned my world upside down. And I feel really fortunate, not only that I you know, was able to do that in the context of studying, but I met a lot of people, including a lot of white people, uh, who helped me sort of work my way through that. Because everybody understands when you first run into a critique of these big systems and structures of power, which give you unearned privilege and power, uh, it's jarring. And the first instinct, of course, is to want to deny it, to want to believe that you're the product of your own choices, that everything you've got, you earned yourself, that if you're in a position of some comfort, it's because you worked hard to get it. Uh, and I had all of those instincts, of course, to want to deny the, the effects of big systems like white supremacy. But um, I feel really fortunate I met a lot of great people who, who helped me deal with that. And so I've tried to work that into my teaching and my political life uh, ever since then. Um, I want to point out I'm not a scholar of race in a technical sense. I mean, I didn't build my career around research into the question of race. I tried to make it part of everything I did. Uh, it, it was part of my research. It was part of my teaching. It was part of my political and community life. And I think that's an, another important thing. Uh, I don't ever claim to be an expert in these matters. I just claim to be someone who has had a great opportunity to try and work it out. Yeah, well, and, and I think that's a, a really great point. And one of the things this, uh, I really liked about The Heart of Whiteness is I'm also reading right now A, a History of White People by Neil Irvin, a painter. And it occurred to me as I, I've kind of been reading them parallel is when I walked into your session at National Diversity Conference, I was prepared for a very academic conversation. You're, you're a doctor, you're a professor. And, and so I thought, okay, I'm going to learn kind of from a very, um, well, academic level, more conversation about um, race and racism in America. And what you gave us was a very practical conversation about race in America. Mm -hmm. And I, I will say for the first, I don't know, maybe minute, I thought, I don't know if I'm in the right place uh, because you started, and I'm sure you already know this, and you said uh, America is a white supremacist country. And I, I kind of went, um, shit, like I'm one of the only white people in here. I don't, I'm not one of those people. No, no, no. I, I don't know if I'm going to make it through no. this whole presentation. And uh, and if you can just kind of go into how you're thinking and, and you have so much information and so much data that really kind of helps explain that theory and, and that perspective. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, I, I want to sort of give a shout out to that book you mentioned, The History of White People by Nell Painter. Uh, it's a, really an extraordinary book. Um, and and she is a, an expert. She's a historian by training and um, really a, an incredible scholar. And and so I think those kinds of works are important. Um I'm not one of them, and that was reflected in the presentation you, you saw me give. So <laughs> I, uh, 
I, I try to always speak in plain language. Uh, I come out of an academic background, but I tire quickly of academic jargon. So uh, I try and lay it out clearly and use words that name the world accurately. And that's why I use the term white supremacy. Now, we're used to thinking about white supremacy only in terms of people who uh, assert an overt white supremacist, supremacist ideology, like the Ku Klux Klan or neo-Nazi groups. And certainly those are white supremacists. But the point I was trying to make is that we all live in a white supremacist country. That is, it was a country founded on white supremacy. Uh, it was a country that used the ideology of white supremacy to rationalize the extermination of indigenous people and African slavery, as well as the exploitation of really every non-white group uh, for, for low-cost labor throughout the history of the country, which is what built this country. Now, that doesn't mean I am a white supremacist or you are a white supremacist, but it means that we have to come to terms with living in that society. And so I always try to focus not just on the easy targets. I think, you know, for most of America, the Klan is an easy target. Um, not very many people go around vocally supporting the Ku Klux Klan. But it's that everyday racism, liberal racism, the unconscious, unacknowledged racism that we can all give into, uh, sometimes not even knowing. It's about what's often called institutional racism, the way that the society is structured to replicate white supremacist patterns. All of that is what we really have to struggle with. And so uh, a lot of that came from this term white privilege. You know, white privilege was a term that was bouncing around 20, 30 years ago and then became much more commonplace. And uh, I always say that you can't understand white privilege if you don't understand the nature of the society out of what out of which white privilege emerges. And to understand it, you have to name it honestly. And that's why I use white supremacy not only as a label for the bad guys, but as an accurate account of contemporary America. And and in the, the session you were part of, we went through all the ways in which that's an accurate term. The distribution of wealth, uh, racialized rates and things like um, the use of force, especially deadly force by law enforcement. Uh, you know, everything, every piece of data we have in the United States points to that racialized disparity between white and non-white America, especially the disparity between white and black America. And so the first thing we have to do, as you point out, is get comfortable with being able to say, yes, I live in a white supremacist society. My question to both you and to Julie, Julie, why was it a challenge for you to maybe sit through the entire uh, presentation, or at least you thought it might be a challenge? And my question to you, Robert, why was this work important? Why did you want to make it a part of almost everything that you were doing? So, I mean, I will say, so, you know, why was it hard for me to sit in the presentation? You know, Torn, you and I talked about this, I think, maybe on our first podcast is that I think a lot of, well, I'll speak for myself, white liberal suburbanites had grown very apathetic in, in our anger or in our, our diligence to continue to fight for equality in this country under Obama because it's like it almost became kind of like, hey, we got a black president, so everything is going to be fine now and I can relax and I can focus on raising my kids and, and doing all these things and fighting my fight as a person with a disability 
And then I've had kind of a couple years of, of backlash of, of kind of this um, things haven't changed in America. You can't go, become complacent. You can't sit on your laurel, laurels because if you are, you're just as guilty as a person who's out there promoting that racism and promoting it, the, the power structure that exists. And when I was, you know, sitting in, in Bob's session, it really was kind of just hit me in the gut when he said, we live in a white supremacist society. And my gut reaction was, no, that's wrong. We don't, we've come so far. And then to listen to the facts and all those kind of things, it was just really a reinvigorated, I think. Uh, let me jump in, because uh, I think there are a couple of things you said, Julie, that I, I would maybe challenge a bit. First of all, things are better in, in a lot of ways than they were uh, in the past. I was born, I said, in 1958. I don't think anybody wants to go back to the state of race relations in the United States in 1958. You know, the black population of the country was essentially disenfranchised. You know, there were a lot of other problems in 1958 we don't want to have to live through again. So there, I think it's important to note that things have changed and in many ways changed for the better. Uh, but as you point out, it's also just as important to recognize how some patterns, especially patterns in, in disparities in, in wealth and, and what I call wealth and well-being, you know, markers of health and, and income and that kind of thing. Some of those patterns have not changed and that's important. The other thing that I think we have to think carefully about is uh, accountability. So I live in Texas, and there's a whole lot of white people in Texas who are actively trying to pass laws to make it difficult, more difficult for people to vote. And those voter uh, ID laws and other f forms of changing the, the electoral system are clearly designed to try to suppress the black and Latino vote in Texas because those populations tend to vote disproportionately democratic. I mean, there's some politics there that's, you know, just unavoidable. Well, I think that the people who are actively trying to pass those voter ID laws are more complicit than I am. Um, and, and it doesn't mean, again, that I'm off the hook, but it means there are different levels of complicity. Uh, and so this is what makes it all so complicated. It, it, we don't want to lull ourselves into a sense that somehow we're better than all the others and we don't have to you know, engage in our own critical self-reflection. Uh, but we also have to acknowledge things are better in some ways. Otherwise, the struggles of people in movements, political movements, um, the civil rights movement and others, the struggles of those people would have been in vain if nothing was better. And of course, a lot of things are better. I agree, Robert. I do believe that things are better. I also agree that uh, equally, we must remain vigilant and complacency is unfortunately just not an option. I smiled on my side when Julie said that, you know, she kind of sat back, kicked her feet up mm -hmm. and said, all right, everything is good. And I'm like, shit, everything ain't never been good. If you are, yeah. you know, if you are an African-American male, black male, you know, things have never just <laughs> been good, if you will. But let's get back to my question. Why was this work? Why is this work important to you? Well, for me, I think there are, there are always two answers to a question like that. We'll take them both. Okay. One is that I, you know, I have certain moral principles and they're important to me. I claim to be in favor of dignity, you know, the inherent dignity of all people. 
uh, I claim to be in favor of equality and solidarity. And, and those are values I think a lot of us hold. And so if I want to be the person I claim to be, if I want to hold the moral values I claim to be, uh, then I have an obligation. And I take that obligation seriously, especially because as someone who was a university professor for 26 years, which is a, in case you don't know, a pretty cushy job, <laughs> I had, um, I got to do work I enjoyed uh, at a more than living wage with an incredible amount of autonomy, which is what's so rare in this economy. So as someone with all that privilege being subsidized by the state to do this work, I felt a heightened obligation. So that's what you might call the argument from justice, that if you're the person you claim to be, you better act in this way. But there's also, I think, what I would call an argument from self-interest, that the fact is my life is better because I have engaged in political and community organizing around questions, not only of racial justice, but gender justice and economic justice, all sorts of things. Uh, My life is better. It doesn't mean my life is easy. I often have to challenge myself and others challenge me. And sometimes it's painful to recognize how easy it is to fail. But the fact is, I, I have a richer, more meaningful life because I have engaged in this activity. Um, at the moment, I'm, as I said, I'm 60 years old and my life kind of splits into half. The first half of my life, I didn't think much about these things. Uh, I believed in the American myth of meritocracy and all that kind of thing. In the second half of my life, I've had to sort of deconstruct all of that. And the second half of my life has often been very painful, but it's a better life. And, it, and from purely selfish motivations, uh, I want to keep challenging myself and being challenged because it's led to some of the most important friendships in my life, friendships that are are really quite deep and meaningful because they're forged in that kind of struggle. So I would always encourage, whether it's white people thinking about racial justice or men thinking about gender justice, to think not only about why it's the right thing to do, but how taking all of this seriously is also, quite frankly, just going to make your life better. Not easier all the time, but I think better. Awesome. Julie? In the introduction of of the book, you talk about kind of the, the joke, and I, I don't want to get into that, but I really appreciated that story, but mm-hmm. really just kind of confronting your whiteness for for lack of the right word and, and how, I mean, just even reading that was, it was painful for me to think about as a, as a white person, but it was also thinking painful for me to kind of think about you, thinking about you as you went through kind of that and tell me if I'm speaking too strongly, kind of that self, self-loathing or, or that really kind of coming to grips with this part of yourself that you knew gave you privilege, but also took power from others. And you didn't at that point have a lot of power to do anything, you know, to change that. Can you talk through kind of your journey with identifying, you know, that change? I think I'd start by saying at one level, anybody who's in my position, you know, a white male with a PhD who had a university position, anybody in my place in the world who says, you know, this can be hard, you know, I can see there's an instinct to say, oh, my God, quit with the self-pity. 
But the fact is, it can be hard. That is, if you're white and you're used to going along with the crowd in a white-dominated society, and in the case of the example you you made, um, if you're used to hearing jokes that are, you know, at least subtly, if not implicitly, if not overtly racist, and you're used to just keeping your mouth shut because it's easier than confronting a friend, for instance, it's hard to change. Now, I don't mean oh, feel sorry for all of us old white people who have to finally get off our butts and do something. But the, the experience of it, as you're pointing out, is really difficult, especially when you risk losing friends or even uh, risk losing jobs. And in some cases, you know, white people have risked their lives in, in movements where they took chances. But let's just take the everyday example you offered where really the only thing at risk is that somebody might get mad at you, some friend might stop calling you. Well, that's not trivial. I mean, we all need friends. We all need to be part of a group. Uh, but that's the kind of, you know, to quote James Baldwin, that's the price of the ticket. If you're not willing to do that, you're not willing to be serious and you're not going to make any progress, either contributing to the progress of society nor making any progress yourself. And I don't know uh, what leads a person to finally want to take those risks. In my case, it was just sort of the slow accumulation of not only knowledge about the society I lived in, but knowledge about myself. So when I would challenge other white people, I was implicitly, I think, challenging myself. Because if you're going to call out other white people for racist behavior, you pretty much better be sure that you're adhering to the same standards you're holding other people to. And so it's complicated, and I don't know that it's ever easy to, to understand one's own motivation or what leads one to do things. You know, we can try to self-reflect about why we do what we do, but a lot of it's hard to figure out as well. But I just know at some point um, I had to go from just thinking certain critical thoughts to trying to make them real in the world. And, and that does include all sorts of risks, some trivial, some more important. And we hope that we are measuring up to our own standards when those things come. You actually uh, raise a very good point, Robert. Uh, in Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, she has a chapter titled The Challenges of Talking to White People About Racism. And I love one thing that she said. She says, in fact, when we try to talk openly and honestly about race, white fragility quickly emerges as we are so often met with silence defensiveness, argumentation, certitude, and other forms of pushback. And so my question becomes, how have you found it to be beneficial to talk to other white people about racism? Maybe one or two consistent points or tactics that you have employed that has allowed the conversation to flourish in your eyes. Yeah. Uh I don't want to just become a walking bibliography, but I, I want to, again, second your book recommendation there. Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility is a great book. And, and she's, I've, I've had the pleasure of seeing her present. And I, I learn a lot every time I hear Robin talk. Um, she's a very wise person and, and very courageous as well. So that's a great book for white people to take a look at. Uh, in terms of strategies for confronting other white people, uh, I think there are really two things I would say, and they both reflect the fact that it's important not to get holier than thou. The first thing is is to, and this is a, in general a pretty good strategy for confronting people, is to ask questions rather than lecture and preach to people. So if I 
run into, you know, again, let's talk about the example that uh, Julie used of a friend telling a racist joke. Uh, instead of getting up on my high horse and explaining why it's racist, it would have been, um, I think, the most effective to say, oh, tell me why that joke is funny. I don't quite understand. Why Why is it humorous to use race as a, a point of humor? And then that puts the other person in the position of having to defend what, in this case, he said, rather than me you know, just being uh, the, the preachy white guy. So I think one thing is to always first lead with a question rather than an accusation. Uh, it just tends to be more effective. And, th- and the second is always to share one's own failures, not just, again, preach at people. So as, as the book that Julie mentioned, The Heart of Whiteness uh, documents, I have a long string of failures. Um, and we all do if we're white, uh, just like if we're men and we want to think honestly about how we've treated women, we can all come up with a long you know, list of failures typically. Uh, and so instead of immediately trying to create um, a distinction between me and another white person, in other words, instead of trying to prove that I'm better than the other person, uh, I think it's more effective to explain why we're all struggling in in the same ways. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes you don't draw that line. If I'm talking to a member of the clan, I'm not going to hesitate to try and distinguish between yeah, between uh, between why I, you know, don't hold the views that person holds. Uh, and that's appropriate sometimes to mark why an overt assertion of white supremacy is beyond the pale and that no one should accept it. But most of what is important for those of us who are white and trying to help each other get clearer about it is to not get up on our high horse, to not immediately create that distance, but to talk about shared struggle. Uh, and that, those are the only tricks I've ever come upon. And they're pretty obvious, but I think they're important to constantly remind ourselves of. So, and I think, I, I mm-hmm. mean, that's one thing that I struggle with a lot. I mean, we've all got families in this world, right? And, and, to be kind of the college educated yeah. um, professional, you know, person in the family who has all of these great liberal ideas as a city dweller, um, it, it is hard to have patience when things that I think mm-hmm. that the people on the phone here or the the people on the podcast here see as just common sense humanity and. and not being able to break through those, I think, is a source of a lot of frustration for a lot of people and have broken a lot of friend and family ties over the last several years, at least, or at least we're hearing more about that now. Um, and, and I think we all have to kind of practice some of the things that you just talked about. And I probably need to write those all down and do it myself um, a, a lot better. Um, one thing that that you... Um, just mentioned reminded me of a question I wanted to ask and it it really kind of one of the parallels that I drew between what you talked about in the heart of whiteness and and the history of white people is really the that race is is the social constraint that is put on by the people in power mm-hmm. and and obviously painter goes through the vast history of getting to that um, starting back in, in the Greek and Roman days but what how do you see in terms of where we're at right now with identity politics and that that movement 
to be our own person and to put our own labels Mm -hmm. as good or bad in terms of breaking down the patriarchy, breaking down the power structure um, that whites have versus non-whites. So I'm a woman and I'm a person with a disability. I have a son who's gay, Tord is black, he's a veteran. Um, Are those labels weakening us because we're not working together and seeing each other's struggles and, and the similarities between them? Is that empowering white people or the, or the white structure, the white power structure in ways that we're not recognizing? Before I answer that, let me go back to the question of family, if you don't mind, uh, because I, th- I think you're right. Um, yeah. Family is always a struggle, uh, but people have different relationships to family. And sometimes um, the long-term strategy of trying to hang in there and, and quietly, uh, or not quietly, but um, carefully challenge people rather than simply coming out both barrels, you know, to critique people. Sometimes that's a very good strategy. Other times uh, we have to recognize the limitations of situations we're in and not be afraid to be harsh. Hey, Crazy and the King fans, that was the first half, just the first half of our interview with Dr. Robert Jensen. We'll be releasing the second half in two weeks and Torin and I will be back with our regular show in just about a week. So I guess that means we're ghosts. Thanks for listening to Crazy in the King podcast. I'm Julie Sowash, your co-host with Torn Ellis. Follow us on social media as Torn Ellis or Julie Sowash. And also follow our hashtag, Crazy and the King. This episode was produced by my gorgeous husband, Chad Sowash. And our music is by DJ Sells, straight out of Baltimore. You can find Crazy and the King wherever you find your podcasts. Please rate us. And if you like it, share it with a friend. We'll see you soon. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.